Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 27, The Lightning Struck Tower. Once back under the starry sky, Harry heaved Dumbledore onto the top of the nearest boulder and then to his feet. Sodden and shivering, Dumbledore's weight still upon him, Harry concentrated. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Takail. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Portland, Oregon is famous for many things, including the fact that its fans of its basketball team, the Portland Trailblazers, are the loudest fans of any sports team in America. Really? Some people would call that joyful as someone (laughs) who hates the Blazers. I call it obnoxious. That is a genuinely cool fact. And that doesn't happen every time we introduce a local group. This time we're introducing the amazing PD Expecto Patronum group who meet in Portland, whose airport code, of course, is PDX. And this group is run by Alice Broderick and Alison Dobsher, and we're so grateful for their leadership. So if you would like to join the local group in Portland or any of the other many, many local groups around the world, go to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups. When I was a little boy, my grandparents lived in Holland and I grew up in England. So it was two or three times a year that I would get to see my grandparents. And my grandmother was an artist. She was a ceramicist. She designed knitwear, but perhaps her most important love was garden design. And so going to visit her 
in her garden was always a big deal because she was always working on many projects and, you know, it kind of expanded every year. And down at the very bottom of the garden, there was this wood and, you know, it was like a six or seven year old, or maybe a little older. It was kind of a scary wood because it was darker and it was very quiet. And, you know, there was moss hanging from the trees and you couldn't quite, when you looked back, see anything outside of the forest. So you didn't quite know where the house was. And whenever we would walk there, my grandmother would tell me that the fairies lived there. And I remember feeling, even as a nine or eight-year-old, I was like, but do they? But they probably do. And if my grandma's telling me, then they definitely do. So, okay, the fairies live here. And then when I'd walk there on my own, I'd be like, are there fairies here? I don't know. And then I'd walk with her again and I'd be like, yes. You know, she would ask me like, can you hear the fairies? And I'd be like, yes, I can hear the fairies. And I just remember like having a sort of choice moment at that age of being like, okay, I am going to earnestly believe that this is true. Even though I don't really know, I don't even really know what fairies are or what they sound like. So maybe that rush in the wind is what a fairy sounds like. And I was thinking of that question of earnestness because... In this chapter, there's so much chaos and tragedy. And I mean, it's the chapter where Dumbledore dies. I guess I was really thinking about the choice of how to be. Do we trust and kind of engage the world with earnestness, even though we don't really know if it makes sense or if it's real or if we're dumb to do that? Or is it naive? Should we be much more smart and savvy and and suspicious? Both are important, but it just... I think I lost something when I stopped believing in fairies, even though I know they don't really exist. But like, who, who's to say they don't? Well, I say that, but I also want them to exist. This is what I mean. Like, when, when do you know when to choose to be earnest? Sometimes, Casper, I get a little annoyed with how adorable your childhood sounds. <laughs> it was just like... Your mom, like, protesting naked, (laughs) and your grandma talking about fairies, (laughs) and, like, you being carried downstairs by your dad. That was maybe my fave. Your whole childhood was doing one of those three things, right? (laughs) Yes, but we should remind everyone exactly how Dumbledore dies, and so in our 30-second recap, (laughs) Vanessa, you are going first. (laughs) Great. Can you count me in? Yes. 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three two, one, go. So Harry apparates him and Dumbledore back to Hogsmeade. Rosmerta is like, look, the the dark mark. They go up to the castle. Dumbledore is like, I need Severus. They run into Draco Malfoy. Malfoy is like, I'm going to kill you. I've been planning this whole time. Dumbledore makes his offers like, Draco, come and join the good side. And Draco is like, maybe. But then all, the rest of the baddies come into the room and they're like, Draco, just kill him already. And Dumbledore is like, Snape, Snape. And Snape comes in and says, Avada Honestly, it still made me sad reading it. Yeah. Feelings. So many feelings. Okay, Casper, can you recap, please? Will you count me in? Yep. Three, two, one, go. 
So they're back in Hogsmeade and um, Dumbledore, Dumbledore's like, oh, how are we going to get back? I suddenly have energy to fly. Accio brooms, which perfectly two brooms arrive. And then they fly back. And then um, as soon as the door opens on the turrets, um, Dumbledore silently makes uh, Harry go, not moving. And then talks with Draco and it's like, you're not a killer, but I am, but I'm not, but I am, but I'm not. And then there's fighting on the staircase and there's more Death Eaters and then Snape arrives and, and Fenrir is like, I'm going to kill you. And they're like, no, save it. And then all the things happen. And he falls off the tower. <laughs> and then all the things happen. It's a full body blow. Yeah. He's not holding back. He's like, if you're gonna do it, do it right. <laughs> so Casper, your story just made me think of a moment in which I was in conversation with fairies. Hmm. My friend Julia Argy and I walked the Wicklow Way in Ireland. I remember. And we would wake up in the mornings and thousands of spiders would have spun webs on the heather. I mean, it was just the most incredible thing to just see, like, fields of, like, rainbow, sparkly spider webs. And so, Julia, you know, when you're, like, hiking all day, you sort of run out of things to do. And so we would just talk at length about the fairies who lived there and the fairy beds that they were sleeping in. These were obviously not spider webs, but fairy beds. And we really earnestly engaged in that conversation while walking. And it ended up being a conversation that went to places that other conversations that I have don't. We talked about what we wish the afterlife was like. And I realized that I really want to come back as a sequoia tree and Ooh. or a redwood. I'm, I'm flexible. We knew we were playing. I don't think either of us believe in fairies. But there was something so lovely about spending time earnestly with that. And I wonder if that's what Draco experiences in the moment where he gets to engage with Dumbledore's offer. Yes, because Draco has been saying, you know, I'm going to kill you. And Dumbledore's like, you're not a killer. And Draco's really kind of fronting. He's like, yes, I am. And and look how clever I am. You know, it's kind of like the baddie speech at the end of a movie. But then we have this breakthrough moment where Dumbledore basically says, like, you have options. And Draco literally responds, I haven't got any options. And it's this moment where, I don't know, I feel like it's not playing so much. It's like, this is the true Draco. I mean, this is why I think he's so important to so many readers is because, like, he's just desperate. I mean, who knows what would have happened if we didn't have the Death Eaters come in? Maybe, maybe with five more minutes, the whole story could have been different. But I do feel like this is him being genuinely earnest about like i don't see a way out like it's not even playing with that it's just the it's the reality you know by playing i mean imagining right Mm. like he for a moment gets invited to imagine not being a death eater pretending to be dead and rescuing his mother i mean i guess in retrospect it's gonna only be playing because fenrir and the other death eaters come in right yeah But I wish that Draco had spent more time earnestly playing with options because maybe it would have occurred to him a long time ago that he could go to Dumbledore. Yeah, you're so right. And I wonder actually if this might help explain a question that I had in the text because Draco says to Dumbledore, you're at my mercy. And then Dumbledore says, and I don't really understand what it means. No, Draco, said Dumbledore quietly, it is my mercy and not yours that matters now. I guess I can read it on a logical level of, you know, he is going to spare Draco the horror of having to kill 
right? Because he's going to ask Severus to do it. But is there something more that's happening in this moment in the text? It surprised me. So I see that line as Dumbledore's sales pitch, right? He's trying to deprogram Draco. Draco's like, I have the wand, so you're at my mercy. And Dumbledore is trying to say, but I can make this all go away. Like, Mm. you have to do a paradigm shift here, Draco. It's not the person with the wand who has the power. It's the person who's offering mercy who has the power. Yeah, and I guess that he's already not necessarily forgiven, but like shown mercy in the face of the attacks on on Kitty Bell and on Ron and like all of these innocent bystanders to Draco's kind of foolishness. Which I do love that Dumbledore throws that in here, right? He says, you're lucky that nobody died. And because nobody died, I can offer you protection. If Katie or Ron had died, I would not be able to. Yeah. But because neither of them did, I have this offer. I think there's something important in the fact that Dumbledore knows he's dying. I I think if Dumbledore was at the height of his powers... This would actually be a different conversation, but there's there's something about the timing, which is so true, right? In so many things, like when you know there's an ending, the words you say to one another just are more earnest. There's just deeper meaning because you know it's the last words you're going to say. So there's there's something in that that's happening here as well, I think. I mean, is it always more earnest? I sometimes think of like deathbed confessions also as manipulative. It's like, you know that it's going to be your legacy. So you're like, oh, I'm sorry for all the bad things I did. Bye. <laughs> Deathbed confessions are much less interesting to me than like how somebody lived their whole lives. But they have more weight, right? Like, even if we don't want to receive words like that, I don't think we doubt their earnestness. Or do you think some? I, I don't know. I do. I mean, I think legally we do. We doubt their earnestness. You know, if somebody is to change their will on their deathbed, there's a lot of going back and forth as to whether or not they were in their right mind. It's like, at what point are you no longer yourself? And are you the elderly version of yourself? Mm. And should we not be taking that version of you seriously? Well, this this shows up in the chapter. I mean, it struck me so much how much Dumbledore's authority and literally his physical power obstructs Harry, right? We have it verbally first. I mean, he says things like, you swore to obey me, Harry. And then he physically binds Harry so that Harry cannot move. He cannot act. He cannot protect Dumbledore, which at that point, Harry versus Draco plus a little bit of Dumbledore, they could have probably taken him on. It's sort of like a deathbed control move from Dumbledore in in an interesting way. First of all, I would like to say that I buy all this from Dumbledore because I think it's completely consistent with the way he was living his life. Yeah. I don't think any of these moves are out of character and are only motivated by deathbed. Right. I do think regardless of earnestness, there's something about these moments where you have power, right? People are listening. They are leaning in to hear your last words. And Dumbledore fully takes advantage of that power. Big time. I mean, the only pleading moment, right, the moment that I do think screams in earnestness is when Dumbledore calls for Severus at the end of the chapter. And what he's pleading for is like, please kill me before this child does. He's saying, give my death some meaning Mm. by making it strategic. Well, and I think that to die by the hand of a friend, I mean, it's an act of love and devotion. I mean, that sounds so twisted, right? But like, 
I think that's in there as well, that it's he's not being overcome by an enemy, like he's being spared by a friend. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So I have a question for you, Casper. Draco does not earnestly want to kill Dumbledore. Does that matter? He does earnestly want to, but he's not capable of it. Doesn't he earnestly want to want to? <laughs> I'm like not kidding. I know how dumb that sounds, but he doesn't want to. He wishes he wanted to. Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that wish is earnest, right? Because he's like, if I was the kind of person who wanted to kill Dumbledore, then I would be the kind of soldier that Voldemort would want. Yes. And then I would be his number one and then my family and I would be safe. That's right. And what I'm interested in is that as much as we value earnestness, This is a moment where I'm wondering at its worth, because to some extent, it doesn't matter that he doesn't want to kill Dumbledore because he's led in the Death Eaters. And so it's become inevitable that it'll happen. Yeah. And so whether or not your heart is in it doesn't matter. What matters is the action. I mean, that's why I love the moment so much when when Dumbledore says, please don't use that word mudblood. Because even in this like futile moment, like he's about to die, there's no one else around, it's just the three of them, and he's still insisting, don't use that word. There's such an integrity to it. And I think you're completely right. Like who we are when no one's watching is kind of who we are when the testing moment comes. So I think to some extent, it's kind of like your deathbed confession, like to want something different after you've lived a life of doing the opposite. It's easy to say like, well, actually, you don't get to want that now. You've chosen over and over again. I don't know. I feel conflicted because I want. I still want to have space for forgiveness, but there's also space for justice. 
Yeah. And I think we see it most clearly with Draco when Dumbledore is like, I'm surprised that Draco let you, Fenrir, Greyback into the castle. Yeah. And Draco, in the same way that Dumbledore is like, don't use mudblood, Draco is like, I did not know he was going to come. I may aspire to be a murderer, but I do not aspire to like this level of chaos. And that is a moment where I feel like Draco's real character is coming through. It doesn't matter what he wanted. There's no reason for him to say this. What does he care what Dumbledore thinks about who he let in and who he didn't? And he has to say it. He's like, no, no, no. I would not have let that man in. I love those moments. I mean, and Dumbledore does them again and again, right? Where Dumbledore says, like, nice to see you to the Death Eaters. And they're like, we don't need your jokes. And he's like, it's not a joke. It's called manners. He just so earnestly wants for full humanity to be in this room. Mm. It's in not allowing hate speech. It's in being polite and dignified even to the people who have come to hurt you. It is in calling out Fenrir and saying, I find what you're doing disgusting. He's demonstrating a dignity to earnestness in this like quiet calling out of like, I'm not going to let any hypocrisy stand right now. Yeah, I think you're so right. And there's something, I think that's perfect, like that mix of dignity, but also exposure that comes with earnestness, right? Like that you are vulnerable when you're earnest because you're not playing or fronting or trying to minimize how you really feel. Like they see him vulnerable. They see him without a wand. So in some way, this image of this old man who's embodied so much goodness and who's had so much power in this kind of diminished state, in some ways is the perfect image for what earnestness is about. You're grounded in what really matters. You're saying what you really feel, even though you can't defend yourself once you've said it. You've said what's true. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a beautiful way to think about earnestness, that it is it is vulnerable because you can be mocked for being earnest. That's right. But it is strong in that nobody can disagree with you. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. That, I think, is the interesting moment about deathbeds. It's not that it's the moment to like flip-flop on who you were, but earnestness makes sense to me on deathbeds and in forests with your grandmother. It's when you don't really have anything to lose. Yeah. And when you don't have anything to lose, why not be earnest? I think that being ironic is often a way to gain power, even when you don't have anything to lose. Dumbledore could be like, I'm not going to let them see me weak. I'm going to mock them and smile until the moment they get me. But instead, right, he's doing this pleading with Draco and with Snape. And I think that whenever you feel the capacity to be brave, you might as well try earnestness, right? I think in some ways Dumbledore has grown and is able to be earnest in more and more places. And that comes with being ridiculed and being considered silly and strange and I mean, a place that Dumbledore is not earnest is at the Ministry of Magic, Mm. right? When he is in that trial with Harry, he is mocking them and is sassing them. Mm. And that is not a safe place for him to be earnest. Yeah. And he knows that when he's close to power, he screws up. And in this moment, you know, on the turrets of Hogwarts, like, it's about sacrifice. It's about legacy. It's about protecting a child, protecting two children, actually which is such a different vibe than him sparring with the minister. 
also think that this whole scene can be read as a performance for Harry, right? Mm. I mean, like, Harry is just such an audience in this moment. And Dumbledore is the only one who knows he's there. And I think he is teaching Harry, look, you can show opportunities for forgiveness even at the end. I want you to hear one last time that I trust Snape. I think the thing he is most earnestly doing in this scene is still teaching Harry. That never ends. Oh, that's beautiful, Vanessa, because he's also teaching the language that you use matters. The way in which you show, as as you said, mercy and forgiveness, but also the the gift of sacrifice. I mean, for better or worse, like he is sacrificing himself and he's also protecting Harry. So it's an invitation for Harry then to protect others. You know, when in the Battle of Hogwarts, he says, no, I can't let any more people die. If it's just me that he wants, I will go. That's beautiful, Vanessa. He never stops teaching. Vanessa, we're continuing with our Florilegia practice, and we've both chosen a little sparklet from this chapter. Would you tell me what the sentence is that you chose? There was revulsion and hatred etched in the harsh lines of his face. Ooh. What about you, Casper? I chose, of course, a little Draco line. I was the one. I was the one. I can just imagine you saying that with like a sword in your hand pointed toward the sky. So why did you pick your sentence? And where is it in the text? I actually don't quite know where it is. So mine is right at the end of the chapter. It's describing Snape. It's right before Dumbledore pleads with Snape. It says Snape gazed for a moment at Dumbledore and there was revulsion and hatred etched in the harsh lines of his face. I think I love it because... It works sort of on three levels. It works if you think of Snape as hating this deed that he has Mm. to do, that he's on, quote unquote, the good side. It works if he is on the dark side, that he's like, oh, I finally get to kill you. I am completely repulsed by you. But it also works on this third level of like, he just hates himself. And this life that he has to live. Mm. I don't think Snape is acting in this moment. I think he's just repulsed by this life. And so it just speaks to me of like all the different ways that we will never know each other. What about you, Casper? I chose I was the one. This is Draco when he is doing his like mastermind evil chit chat before he supposedly (laughs) is going to kill Dumbledore. Evil chit chat. (laughs) You know. And so he's saying he was the one who figured out this connection of the two cabinets. So he says, but I was the only one who realized what it meant. Even Borgen didn't know I was the one who realized there could be a way into Hogwarts. So, you know, this is so much about like, Don't underestimate me. You think I'm stupid. You think I'm just this boy. You think I'm not capable of things. But I was the one who figured this out. Look, I'm dangerous. I, you know, I mean, honestly, there's so much toxic masculinity in this. Like, I have to prove my superiority. I have to prove my power by making you stupid because you didn't figure it out. It's both kind of like a super character revealing moment of Draco's sense of entitlement and smarts, but also just like revealing how desperate and small And sad he is, really. Well, it also seems like he's trying to pump himself up, 
Yeah, absolutely. It's like, no, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one. I can do it. Yeah. I was chosen. I am strong. We're getting sort of behind the scenes the story that he's telling himself in order to be able to do this. So, Vanessa, will you put those two lines together? Will you read out mine first and then yours? I was the one. There was revulsion and hatred etched in the harsh lines of his face. Oh, okay. So this to me would be like, I was the one that like put the revulsion and hatred on his face. Ooh. I feel like I do this a lot. I'm in the middle right now. Three of my loved ones have lost their front teeth. And all of these people are like over the age of nine. So it's like not cute. And there's this story I'm telling myself where, like, I'm the curse. You are the one. I am the one. I put the missing teeth in their face. <laughs> and I think that we tell ourselves these magical, realist stories of, like, oh, my God, I am bad luck. Stay away from me. Or... We do this all the time where, like, a friend will be in a bad mood and we'll be like, oh, are you mad at me? Mm. And it's like, no, I was thinking about climate change, right? (laughs) We, like, write ourselves into these stories of, like, I'm the one. I'm the one who has to X, Y, and Z. And, like, these stories are just not true. Except I am the reason that people are losing their teeth. (laughs) But this is why I moved to New York, just just in case. But this is, I mean, that kind of just reveals the absurdity of how important we think we are in the world, right? But actually, we're mostly not. The other reading I had of putting those two sentences together in that way is that, I mean, it just fits with what you were saying about Snape, that mostly it's like, I am so disgusted with myself. Like, how did I end up in this position? I hate this life. I hate that I have to do this. And I think in those moments, we hate everything. It is. It's this I-centric world of like, I'm the one that has to do this. I often hate the wrong things. Well, I want to see if we get the same reading if we swap these sentences around. Will you read those for us? Yep. There was revulsion and hatred etched in the harsh lines of his face. I was the one. I'm reminded of like victims coming forward of like there was revulsion coming on his face and I was the one who like Mm. stood up to him or I was the one who had to deal with it. And now I'm speaking up. This speaks to me of reckoning these like two moments next to each other of taking somebody else's like hatred and grotesqueness And then saying, and this is what I did. I did something different in the face of it. And I'm thinking of Chanel Miller, who was the young woman at Stanford who was sexually assaulted by Brock Turner. And in the first wave of coverage, she was this unnamed woman. And she then, months later, really powerfully released a memoir called Know My Name, where she really reclaimed the narrative and took agency and said, like, no, it's important that I'm not just this nameless victim, like, this is me, I am me. And we've been reading this line through Draco's perspective of like foolishly putting himself into the story, right? Like I, I, I. And then actually in Chanel's case, it's really important to put the I into that experience and to claim the the particularity and the individual story that was hidden. So yeah, I'm just suddenly seeing the reverse of what we were talking about before, that actually sometimes it is really important 
to say like, no, I was the one. Like this is actually about me. So I'm I'm seeing that this time. Oh, well, Florilegia, once again, coming through. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for sharing Florilegia time with me. Thank you. And it's time for a voicemail. And this week, we're going to hear from Diana. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. This is Diana, and I just finished reading Book 6, Chapter 26 in preparation for next week's episode. And in particular, I was just reading the scene where Harry forces Dumbledore to drink the potion. And while this has always been a really painful scene, it struck me differently this time because since the last time I read it, my grandmother passed away. And it reminded me that on the last night I spent with my grandmother, the doctor at the hospital had given me an IV and told me that the entire contents needed to get into my grandmother's body in order for her to survive the night. But while it was dripping down into her veins, she kept looking at me and telling me, this really hurts. Can you please make it stop? So I picked the IV up off of the hook and brought it down, um, you know, to give her a little bit of a break. But it was so important to get her those fluids. So I kept raising the IV and letting a little bit more flow into her. And she would say, please, Diana, it really hurts. Please stop. And then I would take it back down again. And this continued for, you know, maybe an hour. And at last, we'd gotten through almost all of it. And she just looked at me and said, Diana, I'm fine. Go home. And so I stopped and she passed away later that evening. But it just really made me think that or think about when is it right to persist for someone when they are no longer able to persist for themselves? Thank you for listening and thank you for everything you do. I absolutely love the podcast. Bye. Diana, thank you for that beautiful voicemail. I can give you a Jewish answer to that question. I don't know if it's entirely my answer, but the the Jewish answer is that it is your responsibility to prolong life, but not to prolong death. And I think that that is simultaneously specific enough and vague enough that I find it helpful without being constricting. It's am I helping this person to live their life longer Or am I making their dying longer? And I feel like we can replace those verbs with other things, right? When we're thinking about criminal justice, it's like, am I helping to heal this person, giving more time for this person to heal, or giving more time for this person to, like, experience punishment? These are questions that we can ask ourselves in a variety of circumstances. And I think that the more specific we get with the verbs, the better. So that is my Jewish answer. Oh, I think that's so beautiful. And of course, both are always true. But at the same time, it's it's a way of framing the moment. I love that, that this is a question you can come back to in the moment every time and be like, is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? I also just really appreciate, Diana, the way that you were so responsive and skillful in navigating this and, and clearly so thoughtful and compassionate throughout the whole experience. I'm so glad your grandmother had you by her side. Agreed. Well, Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone in this chapter. And I fear 
that not for the first time there were not a many women in this chapter. So who who are you blessing today? I would like to bless Madame Rose Murda. I'm like confused about the magic of this, but we find out in this chapter that she's been imperious. And yet we're seeing her be really helpful to Dumbledore. And I'm guessing that a lot of the ways that she's being helpful to Dumbledore are actually controlled by Draco. But I want to bless her for being a woman who's like used as a pawn in a war. And we know that she is someone who cares for Dumbledore and Hagrid and all these people. And she's being used to act against her own interests. So a blessing for anybody who feels like they are being treated as an object rather than a person. Mm. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? I mean, I feel like I want to bless Draco. This is the chapter to do it. I mean, I think we all feel trapped sometimes. I think he is trapped more than certainly anything I've experienced, and I hope more than anything any of us will experience. But for anyone who feels like Draco says, I have no choice, I wish for them conversations with people like Dumbledore who can either offer or reveal a choice that is there, or at least to believe that there is a choice. That's all I have, really. I just feel for all of them, except Fenrir. I don't feel many things for him. I mean, I just wish that there were more structures in place so that we all always had options, right? Yes. Ugh, we should never have even gotten to this place. Right. It's like there should be a occlumency-free shelter that you can go to when you're worried that somebody is trying to read your mind without permission. Right. Yeah, this is a structural problem again. Yeah. Well, friends, on that note, in this painful chapter, which has left me feeling all the feelings, you've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you don't have a local group near you, join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this in every episode. Or come and be one of the amazing patrons on Patreon who support this show and make everything possible. You can also send us a voicemail or leave us a review on iTunes. I read every one. Next week, we're going to be discussing an equally difficult chapter, chapter 28, The Flight of the Prince, through the theme of perfection with our special guest, the Reverend Dr. Matt Potts. Yippee! <laughs> this episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Ducks was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is someone named Ariana Nettleman. If you've heard of her, our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Kaisal and Bull. And we are proudly distributed by Acast. We want to thank Diana for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paul Sell. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Casper, it's February 27th. This year, you are going to have a February 29th. It only happens every four years. Do you know anybody whose birthday's on the 29th? Do you know what? I think my elementary school teacher's birthday was on February 29th. If it's your birthday on February 29th, I would just like to say happy birthday times four. We don't celebrate a lot of birthdays on this podcast, but given that you only have a birthday every four years, happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Big time. When do people celebrate their birthday otherwise? They shouldn't. Would you celebrate yours on the 28th of February or on the 1st of March? It's a trick question. If your birthday's on the 29th of February, you just need to celebrate every four years.
This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.